this podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit about the planning aspects of, um, well, certainly photographing wildlife, but it does apply to anything that uh, goes beyond the uh, the normal kind of holiday trip. So um, by that, I mean uh, maybe um, uh, going off the beaten track, essentially. And what partly has prompted this is that I'm doing a webinar in um, a couple of weeks. Um, well, I'm talking about photography for explorers. <laughs> so <clears throat> to me, an explorer is anybody who goes a little bit off the beaten track. So you're not on um, particularly an organized tour unless it's more of a um, kind of safari type thing. Um, but somewhere where you don't have ready access to power and that kind of thing. And maybe uh, you are looking at wildlife. And obviously with my interest in wildlife, that would uh, tend to be the sort of spin I have on things. So the first thing... I'm going to talk about is planning, which is largely what this particular podcast is about, the kind of things to think about. So from an animal perspective, first of all, there are a couple of things you need to think about. One is a kind of macro view of what's going on with the animals, and the, the second is more of a micro uh, view. And what I mean by that is what happens seasonally. So for example, if you wanted to photograph humpback whales off the coast of Sydney, you're only going to see them from roughly the end of May through to early November, generally. I mean, the, it, you'll, it will vary a little bit. You might get the old whale outside of that, but that's pretty much what the whale watching season is um, in uh, Sydney. And equally, there are those in Africa, you have those massive migrations of wildebeest, and they happen at a particular time of year. So depending on what it is you want to see, you first of all need to make sure you're going at the right time. So that's the sort of macro view of it, the seasonal view. There's also a smaller, the more micro view is what's happening on a weekly or daily basis. Now, some of that might be a, a larger split in the macro season. So, for example, and this isn't by any means 100% reliable, but it's simply an observation. Uh, photographing whales going past Sydney, they tend to be more playful in the second half of the season. And you're more likely to get them swimming up to the boat and spy hopping and that sort of thing. Uh, what I've seen on the whole on the first part of the season is they're generally just wanting to get north. So they pretty much swim. You might get some breaching and jumping and all of that. But often they just want to get where they're going. So you might get those variations. Now, another fact to consider is also how wet and dry things are. So I was in Botswana in uh, the end of January um, in 2020. And went out with some local guys. Now, I was just going across, basically overland, between Namibia and Zimbabwe. So I was sort of passing through, really, and grabbed some local guides on the way to look at um, different things. And what we found was that on that particular occasion, we couldn't see anim anim animals where they were expected because, because it had been so wet it meant there was a lot of food everywhere. So the prey animals, things like impala, um, those sorts of things, were off grazing pretty much wherever they wanted. And that meant that the um, carnivores, which which obviously hunting them, uh, would follow them wherever they were going. Now, what the guide would normally do, because normally that time of year it's a bit drier than it was for us, they would normally go down towards waterholes because often in the drier parts of the season, that's the only place where animals can get water. So naturally, everything congregates there, um, prey animals and carnivores, because obviously the carnivores will go where the prey animals are. So 
if you know that you're going at a time of year where it's usually dry, you know that you're likely to find most of the animals around waterholes. So um, local guides are likely to be very helpful because in that situation, it's pretty predictable uh, where the animals are going to be. But if you get a situation where there's been a lot of rain and maybe it's unusual or you you know the season's late or early, whatever it is, then that can often um, change things. So you do need to be aware of that. Um, some of your planning might be to just try and hit a particular um, part of the weather cycle and see what you see. But bear in mind that there can be local changes. So you might have an unusual week or let's say where it just rains a lot and that just changes the whole story. So you do need to be a bit flexible and you do also need to understand to some extent what the habits are of the animals that you want to go and see. Now, if you're not looking at animals, the this, this same rule applies because obviously different times of year. And now I'm thinking of killing, climbing Kilimanjaro. Uh, you can go in uh, the sort of more summery months where it's, although it's still cold up there, you won't get much snow. Whereas if you go when it is colder, you'll likely get snow up there. So um, that um, I'd imagine, not having been up there in snow, I imagine that makes the climb a bit more difficult because you've just got additional cold weather and you're likely to be wet for more of the time and, and all those kind of things. So again, that will obviously impact your clothing. Now, another thing I wanted to talk about was protecting your camera equipment because it's primarily a podcast about photography. So... One of the best investments I made is a cover, and um, <laughs> I'm just trying to remember who made it. I think it's Aqua Splash, Aqua something or other. It's basically um, a large spray or splash or spray cover, and it's designed to go over my Canon, uh, the, either of them actually, the, the 5DS that I use or the 7D Mark II fitted with a long lens. So I typically use a 100 to 400 mil lens. So I've got the long cover, which will work with that lens. And the idea is that it um, uh, it, it kind of attaches itself to the lens hood. It's on a, um, just an elasticated cover there that sits on the lens hood. And then at the back, there's actually um, a, a different eyepiece. So you, uh, you hold it in by removing the eyepiece and, and putting in their own eyepiece. And that will hold the cover on at the back. And then there are some holes underneath where you can just get your hands up and get uh, and uh, get to the camera controls. Why is that important? Well, I, I did originally buy it for whale watching because I have on occasion had my camera soaked because I'm uh, it's almost second nature for me to find the wettest part of the boat and stand there until I get a good drenching. Uh, but what I found was also that um, a few years ago when I was in Tanzania, I went on. I was just only traveling for a few days photographing animals, but I didn't have any cover on the camera and I was occasionally switching from a long lens to a wide angle because I'd only take, I'd sort of taken a bit of a punt and only taken one body with me and sort of hope for the best. But what happened, there's a lot of very fine dust gets around and you definitely don't want it on your sensor, obviously. But what was also happening in, in my particular case was the dust was getting on the terminals between the lens and the body of the camera. And on the last day, I was having to nurse the camera through because I kept getting a communications error coming up on my screen at the back but between the lens and the body so I'd have to take the lens off in as dust free an environment as possible clean the terminals pop it back on and then I'd get I'd be good for a little while and then I'd get the same error coming up so it was um, a real problem and luckily uh, my camera managed to last the distance and then of course when I got back home to uh, Sydney I, I had the 
whole camera serviced. And that is another thing to think about, actually, if you do go to these environments where it is very dusty or very wet or whatever, do get your camera serviced, um, ideally once a year, um, just to make sure you don't have any corrosion going on or that there's dust accumulating somewhere you don't want it. It's just a good way of making sure the camera's good and it's ready to go next time you um, you need to take it somewhere. So the point about this cover is that it was actually perfect for keeping dust out of the camera. So I was using it a lot um, the um, sort of end of uh, 2019, beginning of 2020, when I was in, in a, traveling around Southern Africa for a few months. And um, that cover was just really good because it kept everything clean, no dust anywhere. Uh, I was using it on the camera with the long lens. I had a, one of my other body with a wide angle on, uh, but um, I, I would tend to keep that in, in my uh, camera bag because I wasn't using it so often. But the long lens, I wanted it out. I wanted it in my lap so that if something happened, I was ready to go. So other than, you know, quickly taking the lens cover off and just keeping the lens clean, obviously. And I would do that every at uh, the end of every trip. So usually it was getting cleaned twice a day anyway. Um, the the actual electronics themselves were fine. They worked perfectly fine. So if you are going in a, a dusty environment, I do suggest that you look at something that something is that, that's designed as a splash cover because that will keep the dust out as well. So that's that's a hot tip. Um, now another thing, obviously, to think about when you're traveling in more remote places is how you're going to keep your battery powered. Uh, so again, I normally have spare batteries, so I. Uh, I like to get the uh, the body extenders on my Canons. Both of them have got the extender on it, and that's designed to take a second battery. Um, I just find with the the grip it has, it has a, a, a just the grip and the weight, the centre of gra gravity with that on or centre of balance really on the camera with a long lens is just slightly back towards me a little bit, and I just find that makes a difference when I'm using the camera compared to using the body without the. Um, the extender on the bottom of the, of the body so that is purely a personal preference thing you might like that you might hate it but it does um, give you a bit of extra battery capacity for one thing um, now I have experimented with solar power chargers and the one I used uh, only didn't even make it out of Namibia I wasn't very happy with it it seemed okay when I was um, testing it out before I left Sydney but once I was in the field with it I found it a little bit unreliable. It wasn't always charging. Um, I would think I had a battery on charging. In fact, I didn't. So that may have been down to me as well. So I'll certainly put my hand up and and uh, admit that I'm not. I wasn't quite on top of using that as much as I perhaps could have been. And you may well have um, a solar powered uh, setup that works very well for you. I certainly recommend that they're reasonably ruggedized so that you can just use them in a a car. Um, they're relatively waterproof as well in case it does shower and you've got it uh, got it outside. Solar panels um, are getting much better now and the solar cells themselves work much better. You can get um, a charge out of them in, in uh, low light levels that a few years ago would have just floored it. So the technology is definitely moving on. So I think they are definitely worth considering. Uh, in my particular instance, I, I may have just been unlucky with the, uh, the particular unit that I, I went with. Now, just as a backup to that, if that doesn't work, my absolute fallback, because I always have a laptop with me, is to use that as a spare battery charger, basically. So I bought a USB uh, connected charger to fit my Canon battery. So they're the same batteries in, in both cameras. So I've got four of them. 
And every time I got a chance, I would charge them on the mains. So anytime you need mains, you just um, pop them in the mains charger and um, get them as charged up as much as possible. But when I was away and I, I spent a period, when certainly in Namibia, I was three or four days um, away from a charger, uh, any any sort of mains electricity. So uh, luckily the batteries worked out, though I was kind of careful in how I was using the power on the, uh, the, the cameras as well. But because I had the extra batteries, the four batteries, they were fine for that, that period, even though I was shooting a lot of uh, photographs. And then the um, having the laptop, as in a kind of an emergency USB charger was good too. And the other thing about USB is that um, you might have access to a USB uh, socket in a car if you're in a four-wheel drive. So quite often, in fact, I've been in um, four-wheel drives when I was in uh, Tanzania, actually. They had a, uh, they even had a, a mains board set up that was sort of wired into the car. I didn't need to use it, but that was there if I needed it. So sometimes your local guide, if you're using a guide, uh, will be able to provide you with a bit of power. Um, the other thing I will say on batteries, uh, when I was carrying um, the camera uh, at Kilimanjaro, so there there was Zippo power and um, it was pretty cold. So I just had one battery in the, the camera. I'd taken the extender off just to really min absolutely minimize my weight because I was carrying a lot of other stuff too. So I was just trimming weight anywhere I could. <clears throat> and what I would do with the second battery I'd have a spare that was always next to my body. So I was using my body heat to keep it warm uh, because lower lower temperatures, your, your camera batteries don't uh, generally perform so well. So the idea was that if the battery did start to give up in the camera, I could quickly switch it out with the one that was sort of next to my body, as it were, on a, in a T-shirt or something. It would be relatively warm. So uh, that would be able to jump straight, straight in and start working. So they're the sort of primary tips. Um, another thing I will say, and I've said this before, is that if you are looking, excuse me, to photograph wildlife, I definitely recommend that you think about volunteering and looking at some of the volunteering programs. And the reason, the primary reason I, I say that is that your access to animals is likely to be much better. It's not always the case. Uh, I was helping with a project in Mozambique and that was um, to do with whale sharks and, and we, we ended up, we, we were just on regular tourist boats so that was really didn't work out well at all unfortunately but um, other trips I've done, uh, land-based trips in private reserves, you, you basically get the same access to animals that people spending a huge amount of money to go to these private reserves spend and there's nobody else around most of the time so it's just you and the animals. And one of my pet hates is going to some of these big parks where it's just an absolute circus. Somebody finds some lions and you've got 15 vehicles trying to, you know, get in close and give their clients a view. So um, volunteering is really good from that perspective. Often you're the only people there. The, the other reason I recommend it is that you will, in my experience always, <laughs> um, learn a lot more about the animals, the conservation process that the the that particular group is using the sort of issues they face um i, I met the anti-poaching guys in um definitely in zimbabwe and that was just really good uh hearing their stories and what was going on there and you just learn an awful lot more not only about the animals but about the local um situation there the local uh, the local pressures the local cultures all of that stuff so 
to me, that's much more rewarding. Now, definitely with uh, some of the the more organized, sort of more regular tourist trips, you can get very good guides as well who are very knowledgeable and can tell you a lot about what's happening. Uh, my, as I say, my experiences with conservation, these are people who are actively doing conservation and most of them, many of them will have been doing it for most of their lives. You might have decades of experience there and I've certainly heard things that uh, really surprised me, really shocked me. Um, I Preconceptions that I'd had about conservation and what was the right thing to do with certain animals were just completely wrong and um, uh, most people are, are actually quite ill-informed about uh, the best ways to um, embark on converse, uh, conservation of, of, of certain animals so that's that's a sort of final aspect of it something else to think about so I guess just to, to recap as I've covered a few things there so this is really about thinking ahead. It's about thinking about the environment you're going to be in. What's the weather going to be like? Uh, obviously, things like clothing. You want to make sure that you're comfortable and you're warm or you're able to stay cool if you're in a hot place because it's very difficult to um, to do anything if you're not well. Absolutely uh, stay hydrated. That's um, an absolute fundamental. Um, just drink as much as you need to. When I was in hot environments and working, I'd easily be drinking three litres of water a day. So you need to make sure you've got... Um, a good canteen as well as your um, camera gear uh, to, because you do want to make sure that if you're off <clears throat> excuse me walking through the bush that you've, you you can stay hydrated uh, because you never know what's going to happen and um, so think ahead think about the time of year you're going what you're likely to see what's normal and then as it gets nearer and obviously there are things like the paperwork the visas that all, all the different things you need to have vaccinations all of that I'm not really going to touch on that because they're, they're I'm assuming that if you're thinking about that kind of trip, you'd be tuned in enough to, to do all that anyway. So think about the time of year and what's likely to be happening, what that you are likely to see. Maybe that you want to see a lot of young animals. When do these animals typically give birth? You know, all this kind of stuff. And then as you get closer to the time where you're going, just have a look at the local conditions because you may well find that um, you're going to a country where it's normally dry at that time of year. And so animals would be reasonably easy to find but they've had a you know really good wet season or an, an unexpected period of rainfall and it just changes everything so do be very aware of that think about the gear that you want to take take obviously what you need but think about how you want to keep it going as well um, a final thing on um, memory cards I don't keep copies in the camera as long as I, I will while I've got space because I have two cards in my in both my cameras but I also take a solid state hard drive with me when I go and that's linked to the laptop so I always make sure I've got two copies of every image so generally there's a backup set on the hard drive so I've got a solid state one terabyte hard if I've got two of them two one terabyte hard drives that I use I might keep uh, one of the um, a compact flash as a backup in the camera and then I'll use an SD card as the, the kind of working card but um I like to keep two copies if I can, but do if you've got somewhere else to copy the the images to. Uh, small external hard drives are very cheap these days, and they're quite rugged. A lot of them. I just wanted the solid state because I was going for an extended period, and I didn't want any moving parts. And also, I had a size and weight issue with what I was carrying. So um, those are those are other things to consider. Um, and that is pretty much it. You know, think about how you want to care for yourself, care for your camera and just keep everything powered. So I hope you found that interesting. I will uh, sign off right now and speak to you next time. Bye for now. 
Just before I go, I wanted to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the um, the platform I use for all of my podcasts, they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron, and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month, You'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is some information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcast and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now. 